Welcome to the Sum of It All Teaching Math to Multilingual Students podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Teaching Math to Multilingual Students, Positioning English Learners for Success by Catherine Beachball, Aaron Smith, Lina Rodrigo Carillo, and Rachel J. Pennell. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. And this week, we are going to chat about the final chapter, chapter 13, Engage with Parents and Families of Multilingual Learners. Audrey, this chapter, it starts with the authors exploring how different parenting styles and cultural values might influence the ways parents engage in their child's education. And Audrey, I, I don't know about you, but I really appreciated how in the first activity here that they've asked us to think aloud, uh, think to ourselves, like this idea of positioning ourselves, like they give this, for instance, what if you today had to move to another country with your eight-year-old daughter? And they play out this scenario about what the different things would be like for you as, as your child started school and started speaking uh, a different language and the child coming home and um, not wanting to speak English with you, perhaps, and just some of the different challenges that that might occur. And they give a couple very thoughtful questions for us to reflect on. And I really appreciated that experience. Um, I have to say that I think sometimes in our world of education, we're very sort of self-absorbed of what our stance is and what we believe about education and, and how our job is to make sure other um, families can um, come on board with that. And what I appreciated with this is it put me in the, the place of someone who is an immigrant and what that would be for me. And I think that empathetic journey was very helpful for me. Yeah. You know, I really appreciated their point, even just about the the language conflict at home. And, I, and they didn't write it so much as that it was a conflict, but I, I can see in this, um, this example they've provided of, for us that, that as, a, as a child learning a language, a new language and coming home and speaking that and your parents perhaps speaking the language that they're more familiar with, like there can be an ongoing struggle to figure mm -hmm. out how to communicate with one another. And I think right. we do this um, to our students without acknowledging the implications of what happens at home when the language development happens at different rates for different people. Um, and so I just, I paused there and I thought a lot about that and I journaled about it and I just appreciated the time to think about that um, in this space. Yeah, for sure. And um, as the authors go into the chapter, uh, they identify this idea of traditional forms of family engagement versus non-traditional forms. And super interesting, uh, just to give it, our listeners a couple examples, traditional forms like attendance at parent-teacher conferences. Oh my goodness, Audrey, mm -hmm. that was definitely the talk of the school in, in many, many years that I was uh, working in elementary schools is like, you know, who's coming to parent conferences? Why aren't they coming there? That, that was really a source of uh, just a, a lightning rod of, of, of discussion. Um, versus this idea of non-traditional types of family engagement, like supporting parents in developing leadership. Um, you know, as, I, as I'm thinking about what I just said, so much of the non-traditional forms, they strike me as asset-based. Like, let's, let's see what assets our parents have and allow them to become more leaders. 
but it seems so much of our traditional forms of engagement are based on this, this power and perceived knowledge differential. And what I mean by that is like, we, the school, you need to come in and listen to us so you can do it our way. So you can get with the program, right? Versus we, the school need to support you as leaders and we need to educate ourselves so we can best serve you. So another way to say it is like, how often do we as educators say we need to be educated versus our parents need to be educated? Wow, that, that's a lot there, Mark. I really appreciate <laughs> you. I appreciate you bringing that up because I, um, I don't think that I thought of it that way. And I, I appreciate that idea of, of looking at whose responsibility it is to shore up on whatever gap there is between what families and schools um, know and believe about each other, right? Um, I, it makes me think a lot about kind of the current climate here in Southern California, um, where we're podcasting from, you know, you and I both have children in our public systems. And mm -hmm. one of the things that um, pushes a lot of our local schools to uh, communicate with parents is their LCAPs, their, their forms that talk about funding and how they're spending funds and their programs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's these parent surveys that are kind of asked for as part of this document. And right. when you think about those parent surveys, I've taken a ton of them now. Um, <laughs> when I read what the questions ask of me, and there's a multiple choice listing of which of these programs would you like for your child to be engaged in? Um, and, you know, what of these things that we do, do you like the most? Um, you know, I appreciate the soliciting of my opinion, but what I'm being asked to give my opinion on is things that are already within the system versus mm -hmm. what would I like to see the system become, I guess. Yeah. And, and even beyond that, you know, um, to what extent those results of those surveys are communicated to parents and then talked about what action we take, right? Is it, is it, we would like your information now we're going to go do something with this, yeah. or is it like, let's together figure out what this says and do something with it. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, interesting dynamics around those. And I think if we were really to think about who holds the power in those yeah. surveys, yep. you know, it's all held within the school or the district. It's not held, it's not given to the parents um, as freely, I guess. Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking as you're talking is that whatever we do with whatever type of data we have, whether it be data about students or data that we gather from parents, um, I wonder how we make sure that we're we're not looking at our multilingual students and parents as just data points. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really feel like we have to get beyond that if we're going to get to that, to deal with that power differential that you're just talking about. Yeah, I think that's critical, Mark. I think, I think anytime we look at data, it's really important to understand the story behind it, um, what story the data is telling you, but like, where is that coming from? And so, you know, one of the tools that I know that you and I have used um, with folks locally are uh, empathy interviews, right? Where you say, okay, here's what I think the data is telling me, but let me go ask some questions now. Mm -hmm. So let me think of what questions I need to really investigate. And let me go ask the people who took the survey what they think about these things, right? Let me hear from <laughs> right. them mm -hmm. um, what this data point really represents. Um, it's not just a number, it's a lived experience, right? There's something behind why they checked this box. What is that? Um, and that when we do that, we can really find out what parents value, what they care about, and how they want to be a part of their child's education. It's definitely not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer to this. So we got to investigate further. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. And the authors in this chapter, um, 
they they remind us about assumptions. Mm. Uh, and I think this is really, really important that we make a lot of assumptions about what families and students care about. And we, we, we are coming from our own viewpoint or the system that we went through and we want to replicate that system so kids can quote unquote be successful. And, but, you know, the other thing that we should keep in mind is that even if we have some things that we find out about a di- about um, specific students and individual families, um, there may be limitations to this. So what I'm thinking about with this, Audrey, is that there's a lot of variability, and the authors mentioned this a couple of times in the text, amongst our families, even amongst um, whatever student group we might be identifying. Um, so it's important to think about, okay, we we put aside some assumptions, we've done some empathy interviews, we've done some investigating, and we've we found out some things, but there's still this variability. And it's important for us to think about how we might address that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So you and I have talked quite a number of times about this idea of universal design for learning. And I think this could be a space uh, where we think about it in the context of how we work with families and parents. So one of the premises is that there is variability. So you have to design with the notion that there's going to be differences between how people interact with something or perceive something. And I think, I think the authors did a great job, like you mentioned, of, of noting that, like you've talked to one multilingual student's (laughs) family, that's all you've done. You cannot make an assumption that all multilingual students have this, or families have these beliefs or or values, Um, you know, one. And so I think one of the things you can do is instead of trying to, um, instead of being overwhelmed perhaps by just the number Mm -hmm. of data points then that you have when you think about all of your students, the idea really is to understand the breadth of your uh, continuum of your variability. So like, what are those extremes? Where are parents perhaps on one side saying like, I'm handing my child over to you, please educate them and hand them back to me at the end of the day. And maybe on the other side of the extreme, there's like, I need to be super hands-on with the decisions you're making about curriculum Mm -hmm. and the activities you're doing. And I want to be there to volunteer and I want to be in their classroom, right? Um, And so if you think about those two extremes, once you Mm -hmm. find out what your extremes are, then you design your interactions and the spaces for parents around those extremes, right? So you're designing for the margins, I think is the words that we use in universal design. Like think about those as you're designing and not necessarily the individual data points, knowing that if you design for the extremes or the margins, you will have made space for everyone in between as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And and it really connects well to Zaretta Hammond's work. Uh, As as you recall, Audrey, we, we engage in a book study around culturally responsive teaching in the brain. And this, this is just such an important aha that I had when we read that book around the idea of individualist and collectivist cultures and how, the again, that variability between what they value um, is so, so important because a lot of our traditional system has really been based on this idea of this individualist culture. And so many of our students and families come from more of a collectivist background. And um, it's just really important to acknowledge those two things. Yeah. So from that, then we have what we build into misconceptions, right? So if the way I see the world is not the way you see the world or understand it or value it, um, we often have like misalignment between values and programs and things we do. But we also sometimes fall into a deficit trap where we start to give them a hierarchy and say like, 
sorry, that's not as good as if you were to mm. change and have this other view. And I think we have to be really cautious of that. I think Zaretta Hammond cautions us about that. I think these authors are cautioning us against it, which is to say that like, we have to value the diversity of what we have instead of trying to assimilate and stick everyone into some kind of mythical, normal or average space. Yeah, ex excellent point. Uh, the authors share that for many Latinx families, there's a difference between the expression to educate versus to teach. I thought this was so interesting that the, the authors state, for example, that educating in Spanish encompasses moral and ethical values and social behaviors, whereas teaching as pertaining to teachers in schools. So uh, it, in regards to that, specifically in the text, Audrey, I, I really recommend to listeners that in, in the text that the authors have a way for us to consider our own five core values of our family. And I don't know about you, Audrey, but I jumped in and, and I engaged in that. And what's really interesting is you write down your core values, your family values, and then you go ahead and compare to some things that they've discovered around Latinx families. And it's so interesting to compare and contrast. And that's not something I, I believe that I've engaged in before. And the authors also provide a couple of uh, uh, accounts of interviews that they've done from parents from different countries to help us get a glimpse into their approach to education. Um, and a little later, again, they remind us that it's important not to generalize, but, but also very helpful for us to see this variability across Latinx families, um, from different regions, from different countries, and really appreciating that. Um, and so uh, this all leading to this mismatch of this academic standpoint versus social standpoint. Um, and how, like I said earlier, how you can have well-meaning educators and well-meaning families just having a failure to communicate mm -hmm. about what they feel like their role is. And I have to bring in something, Audrey, that is something that educators have is this, this thing that if they could make go away as their big issue, they would all vote for it. And you know what's coming. Yep. It's the homework conversation. Homework. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, boy, uh, if we're already having a miscommunication between families and educators, and then you throw in something like homework that has its own set of craziness, um, it seems like that that's a potential for disaster. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's the great way to describe what's happened at my kitchen table most nights is disaster. <laughs> um, so uh, just to, you know, to think about that for a second, Mark, is like um, when we have these spaces that are really going in between schools and families and we don't have good communication, there is gonna be conflict, right? right. So like, I'm not asked what I value about what my children do at home and, pertaining to their schoolwork of the day. Um, and at the same time, like there's no space to like have these conversations back and forth. And, and to that end, I think a lot of times we are trying to do little mini fixes to try to patch things together, almost like a Band-Aid, uh, mm -hmm. when we're not really fixing the big issue um, behind homework. And, and to not change this into a homework episode, I'm going to make this short <laughs> to say like, we had an episode on this back in season one when we were reading Peter Liljedahl's uh, mm -hmm. uh, Building Thinking Classrooms. Right. Um, done a lot of thinking and, and talking around that since then. Um, but I think that the real, the real piece that I think is a takeaway in this chapter of this text is to remember that in any of those instances, when we find those 
those conflicts or those mismatches, then instead of slapping on a very quick Band-Aid fix, um, let me try this instead, let me just do this, it sounds like you want this, so I'm going to give you that, right? One of those kind of exchanges that we take time to investigate what the root cause is and deal with the root cause. Um, That if we continue to slap little Band-Aids on situations, we're not going to fix anything. Um, That we're not dealing with the variability of our parents and our students. We're not acknowledging that there's something broken within the system, that it's not within the kid, it's not within the family, but that the the system is not designed um, to take their feelings or um, concerns into into consideration. So I I think that would be the place I would would push that for now. And someday we can talk more about homework on another another episode. Sounds good, Audrey. And uh, just just to chime in with what you were just talking about, um, because I, I think if I were a listener to this episode, at some point I might get to the point where like, Mark and Audrey, this is just, this is a lot of stuff to keep in mind. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of variability you're implying and uh, I'm one teacher, I have X amount of students and this just seems like it's a lot of trouble. Um, why can't I, you know, a, a viewpoint might be, why can't I just get my kids and families used to how things work in this country so they can be successful? I mean, I, I've heard that before. I think at one point in my career, I might have uh, subscribed to something pretty pretty similar to that. Um, but what I realize now is, is what you were just saying a moment ago, that our traditional system of education has, has been so broken for many of our families. Like we have not done a good job leveraging the assets of our families. And and really the history in our country of a, about assimilation in education, it's, it's pretty bleak for many people. Yeah. You know, it's a great point that, um, you know, any educator should take some time to think about the history of, it, of our educational system and to do some reflection around it because um, it, it is a system that's based on assimilation. And when you ask about assimilating to what, to whom's, whose values and to whose norm, Uh, It is definitely about um, removing a whole bunch of folks from the system um, Mm -hmm. and to the point of disregarding them, um, trying to change them in in some awful, awful ways. And so I think what happens is is that sometimes we look up and we say, that's too big of something for me to change. Like I'm a a teacher in a classroom. I'm a leader in a school. Like Mm -hmm. that's huge, right? Um, and, And so what I guess I would say is like, I think we have to be active in both helping our students to navigate the world as it is, um, but also be active in dismantling the inequitable systems. Like mm-hmm. you have to be doing both. And, right. and I want to be clear that I'm not saying tell your kids that, you know, it's all rosy and fine and just, you know, like let them, you know, we have to acknowledge we have a broken world right now that's right. not designed right. for everyone. Um, yeah. How do you help them to learn to code switch and do the things that they need to do to survive? That's important. But at the same time, what are the equal number of actions you are taking to dismantle the inequitable system and change it so that the next generation of students has something better to build upon? So um, it's a hard space. It's not easy work. I think um, I think it's important to have those reflective moments and, and to think uh, very seriously about what are those actions you're taking to change things. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think a lot of people are really engaged in um, that type of struggle right now, which is which is good. I I guess what I the way I would characterize it, it's the traditional view of assimilate uh, versus what we're grappling with now, which is making sure that students can show up with their language and their culture, and these are assets to build upon. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, uh, as we move into our, our strategies portion of the chapter, um, I'm really encouraged by the many different strategies that, that the authors um, share for us. Yeah, this part of the text is just absolutely rich and worth taking each one maybe to your school committee and talking about like, how might you consider doing this? Um, they talk about never making assumptions and looking for barriers and being innovative and finding effective ways to communicate and making a welcoming environment. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, one that really just struck me is one that I experienced recently, which is the Zoom conferencing during the pandemic. And I think this fits into ways we communicate with parents. You know, for, uh, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast episode, Mark, about how for years, you know, teachers would talk about how many parents they got to show up in their classroom on back to school night or for parent mm -hmm. conferences, right? Like this was like mm -hmm. a badge of honor, like how many parents right. got to walk in the <laughs> <Totally>. door. Um, <laughs> and what's so ironic about that is it, it probably has very little to do with how great a teacher you were and whether or not the families that you were serving had that time free and were able to overcome barriers in their own lives to get right. there. Um, right. I heard this last two years, teachers express how many more parents showed up to parent conferences because they were on Zoom. And you know what's funny about that, Mark, is like, it was not done because our system looked up and said, gosh, we got to include more parents. Let's design this differently. I mean, we did it because they didn't want to get, people didn't want to get sick. We had, you know, right. issues yeah. about having people on campus yeah. and we said, we can't have you here. And so instead it was out of necessity. People were like, we're just going to try Zoom. And yet it eliminated tons of barriers. I didn't have to deal with childcare for my other children. I didn't have to get to mm to a school site when I just walked in the door from getting home from work. I didn't have to deal with my kids not having dinner. Like all of these things, yeah, all these yeah. barriers were dealt with in the fact that I could just log onto my computer and have a conversation with the teacher, multiple nights, multiple time yeah. slots, you know, all that good stuff. So I think it's worth noting that sometimes we accidentally fall into these uh, spaces, <laughs> yeah. but if we took a moment to reflect, we would see that that universal design, that looking for variability and designing around variability and barriers is really key to serving our families. Yeah. Wow. Audrey, that's, that's an incredible point. And gosh, can you imagine the power if we did that with so many of the things we do, if we just stopped and said, what are the barriers to our families being able to engage in this? So such a great example. Well, Audrey, my, my book is all underlined and highlighted. And uh, I know I only have time to share a couple of these strategies, but listeners, really, you've got to get into this chapter and check out all these ideas. There's multiple pages of them, but I'm going to highlight a couple here. One reminded me of what you were talking about with our homework conversation. Not that we're going to go down mm -hmm. that road very far, but you know, the authors mentioned that strategy of including questions for parents um, to engage uh, in conversation around homework. And I, I just think that is such an important strategy, uh, one that you and I have used before as well. And just keeping parents out of that tutoring and reteaching um, role um, and letting them stay in the role that, they're, that they feel like that, they're, they're, that means so much to them um, and, 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 and thanking them and acknowledging them for doing such good work in the, in the role that they do and really not turning them into a, a homework tutor. Um, I think having those questions gives an alternative so that they can, they, they can feel like they are doing something very valuable, but it's, it's not going to be the role of the teacher in, in that homework. Um, the one other one that uh, I'll highlight, Audrey, has to do with uh, oral history. Um, it, I, I just continue to be fascinated by thinking about how we can leverage um, families that really have a rich oral history. And 
I just think that is such an untapped resource um, and, and how we can bring that into our classroom and um, having extended families uh, be able to do that as well. And so um, the authors mentioned that in a strategy and my, my mind is just uh, spinning with many different things that we could do around that. Um, and uh, Audrey, I do, before we wrap up, I do have to mention 13.3, which is the very last page of the chapter. Um, and in 13.3, the authors start with this question. When multilingual families walk into your school for the first time, what should they experience? And for those of you that are listening to this um, relatively live right here before or right at the beginning of school starting for you, um, it's what a powerful question. And they go on to, to allow you to think this through with all throughout the year. You have open house, parent conferences, like walk in the steps of your families ahead of time, anticipate the barriers, think about how you might lower them. And wow, Audrey, what a powerful way to end the book. Yeah, you know, this book, I'm so appreciative of the num numerous strategies in this book that can be so powerful to implement in our classrooms in the upcoming year. Um, it's been a fantastic read for us and discussions. Super interested in what our listeners are planning to try on and how it goes. Um, and, you know, and just thinking about that, whenever we have a book club and we read something and we think about new things, how are we going to share that with others? And how are we going to find accountability in our, and the things we're trying on this year um, in order to continue to work, move the work forward? So just an encouragement to reach out and find that, um, that thought partner, that person willing to um, continue to ask those questions of, of each of us as we, as we work to do better for our students um, in this upcoming year. Oh, for sure, Audrey. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode and this season. We'll be launching a new season next week. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your perspective about our discussion of chapter 13. Join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes learning from bright spots. Mm -hmm.